Hello and welcome to Disseminate, the computer science research podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wardby. This is the first episode in our CIDA series. Uh, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by Emmanuel Hafner, who will be talking about his paper, Mutable, a modern DBMS for research and fast prototyping. Emmanuel is a PhD student at the University of Saarland in Germany, and his research interests are databases, and specifically he has looked at in the past query processing. Emmanuel, thanks for joining us on the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Great stuff. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in then. So can you start off by telling the listeners how you became interested in database research? Okay. Um, yes, it was kind of an accident, perhaps you could say that, because uh, I graduated in compilers, actually. So I did my bachelor's and master's in compilers. I was working on Clang and LLVM. Um, sadly, my professor didn't have um, an open position for me as a PhD student. And it turned out that in my last uh, semester of my studies, I was taking the database class of my now my chef, uh, Professor Jens Dietrich. Huh? And so this database class was actually really interesting. And I really liked the way that we connect theory to practice. And uh, also there was uh, quite a lot of coding involved. And uh, I like that. So um, I graduated best of my class. And then Actually, Jens approached me and, and he was like um, whether I would like to work for him as a like research assistant or something. And I was laughing and saying, no, actually, I'm done. We could talk if you had a PhD position. I was making a joke. And then I got a mail a few weeks later from him inviting me over for a chat about that position. And uh, I wasn't really convinced I would like to do that. But then... We had this chat and, and it was a really good offer. And uh, I was also eager to work on the in a domain where we have compilers and databases uh, collaborating, like query compilation. So that's that's how I got into databases. Ah, that's a really nice origin story. I like that. Do you find that there's, there's plenty of things, like from your uh, experience kind of with compilers that you can apply? I mean, maybe this is a lot, we can touch on this over the course of this uh, conversation, because I kind of feel like that influence in this work a little bit. But did you feel like a lot of transferable skills from that that just applied very nicely to databases? Um, yeah, definitely. For one, I can say that at the time when I was starting my PhD, compiling to LLVM was kind of the, the hot topic. And I knew LLVM very well. So I could I was able to pick that up quite easily. So, yeah. Okay, great. So, can you set the scene for, for your paper? All right. So, the introduction is kind of the story of my own, uh, rephrased as, as someone else. So, when I started my PhD at this group, no one there was working on a complete system. So, the people were doing fundamental research and under lab conditions, I would call it, like, writing the code just for particular experiments. And this means if you have a new research idea, it's it's kind of hard to give it a quick try because you don't have a system at hand that you could just plug your idea into, right? And it's, it's also, it, you suffer that there's no one next door that you could just ask for help who is familiar with the system. 
this is this is one problem that I spotted, and the other problem um, is that if you're a new PhD student, you have to come up with ideas, right? But this can be really hard. And if you are working on a system or, or you have a system at hand, then you can then it may have flaws, it may have issues, and this can be a spark of inspiration and and, and lead you into your PhD. And I would say that during my time as a PhD now, I've spoken to some people that shared this experience. So, so how does this lead to the introduction of the paper? In the paper, I'm telling the story of Bobby Tables, which you could think of was is, is me, <laughs> because we witnessed the same the same story. So consider Bobby Tables, who is pursuing a PhD and just started recently. And Bobby is working or, or pursuing a PhD in the database research. Now, Bobby has this idea that he or she might want to implement and give it, an, give it a try, but has no database system at hand. So what Bobby can do is go to the database of databases, or in short, the dbdb.io. And there you have a list of, of, I think it's 877 databases. And you could just type in search queries for different categories of databases that you're looking for. So Bobby could just start hacking into the search uh, engine what kind of, of uh, system Bobby's looking for to, to find a system where Bobby can implement uh, the ideas. And there are plenty of systems, as I've said before. So you could guess there will be one that fits my needs. Uh, but um, as I do do this in the introduction, I show that if you have particular interests, then you're only stuck with very few systems. And when you just have like two systems available in final at the end, then well, you have, you're stuck with design decisions that are baked into these systems. And another problem that arises is not only that you have that, that few systems available for the particular kind of research that you might be interested in, but also I found that documentation is lacking. And I have to explain this because when I say documentation is lacking, I don't mean that these systems usually come without documentation. Like if you consider, for example, PostgreSQL, of course, there's documentation. There's plenty of it. But I, this documentation is targeted more towards database administrators and database users. But Bobby is a researcher. So he or she needs guidance how to implement the idea into the system. And I had the feeling that this is lacking. And uh, now, if you're wondering why the main character of the introduction is called Bobby Tables, so this is actually a name taken from XKCD, and I also looked it up. So it's uh, XKCD number 327, and I really like that XKCD. It's quite funny. It's about SQL injections. You can give it a read. And also what's quite nice about the name is uh, Bobby is also a female name. It's both male and female nickname, so it's also a way of inclusive writing, I would say. Amazing. Thanks. Yeah, I, I mean... The, the, that experience that you said at the very start of your PhD was the exact same as mine. I mean, I know it's the true of, of most PhD students in databases, right, where you kind of left with this scenario of building a very like small prototype to show your thing, but then that kind of makes kind of comparison very hard because you have to re-implement things and stuff. And, yes, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a mess. And if you go down the other route, taking an existing system and – trying to like find documentation on the internal system of, of, of like components of that system is pretty much non-existent, right? I mean, there's a few systems where it's okay, but 
by and large, it's, it's really difficult. And these systems are so complicated, and they've like especially some of the older ones, and they've evolved over such a long period of time, right? Like it's very hard to to go in there and actually run your experiment, right? Um, or do what you want to do with it. Um, let Let me tell you a fun story. You know, I'm I'm um, listening sometimes to the Stack Overflow podcast, and on one of these episodes, they told that the founding idea behind Stack Overflow was documentation is a myth. There is no documentation. Everyone claims to do it, but it's never sufficient. So so the radical new idea was instead of having documentation, let people discuss the problems in an in an open forum and you can just search that forum and this forum becomes the actual documentation of the software. Genius idea, right? Incredibly yeah. successful, right? I mean, like self-generating documentation in a way, right? I mean, where the hell would we all be without Stack Overflow? So, yes. <laughs> it's a crutch I rely on most days. So, um, <laughs> oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, great. So, obviously, a new paper. We've, we've set the scene here. We've gone through the story of Bobby Tables and come to the conclusion that you're going to design a database system that allows us to basically like solve all of these problems right and it's called mutable and can you first of all maybe tell us about like the design goals for this idealistic database management system for bobby tables yes so uh, when we say design goals uh, let me just clarify that that now i won't talk about the software design goals but more of like the conceptual design goals yeah so how would we want to help bobby tables and put him or her out of his misery. So I would say that what we wanted to do is to build a new system that is primarily targeted at research and developers. And so the system is not designed to be a product in the end, right? So it it should be designed to be used for research and prototyping. So that's why the title. Um, Yeah, it, it has to serve as a unifying framework for database research And I find this is quite an important aspect because if you're doing research, at some point you need to evaluate your work and you need to also compare your work to related work. And this this can also take a lot of time because you have to get this related work. It may reside in some code base where you have no access to or the code base is outdated and the code isn't compiling or whatnot. Yeah, and many things can go wrong. So just doing this comparison to related prior work is already demanding. And and so I'm, what I want to say is that Mutable should serve as a unifying framework where we can have multiple implementations of various research ideas coexist in one system and you can just flip a switch and then you use the alternate um, algorithm or approach. Then uh, another design goal is that we impose as few design decisions on the developer as possible, such that the developer is free to pursue any alternative path for solving a particular problem. And I mean, this is also kind of a limitation that we will probably discuss later. So not going too much into detail now. We want Mutable to be uh, flexible and to be configurable by the developer. So by flexible, it kind of means as the same thing before, if you design decisions, so you're, we are flexible in the sense that you can implement many different kinds of approaches. And by configurable, I mean that you have this ability to flip a switch and, and mutate the system behavior. And that's also why we named it mutable. 
and because there's a table in the name. <laughs> um, it's a yeah. good name. It's a good name. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, lastly, um, Mutable is uh, should provide documentation that targets developers and eases onboarding, and this should at least be the getting started section of a, of a markdown document where you know how to download and compile the project, but it should go beyond that and instruct people on how, if you're interested in, in providing a new algorithm for a particular part of the system, how would you go about it? And um, cool. So this is, this is, I love the sound of this system. Um, so we mentioned earlier on that there were other systems, if I go on dbdbi.io, and there's, there's, there's someone else tried tackling this problem before. And, and if if that's the case, how does how far do those systems go to achieving these design goals? And like what's missing from them? And what's the sort of the, the gap that Mutable fills? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a tough question. So... Of course, we did have a look at related work, and what we found there is that this, 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 this. Um, I mean, we're not there yet, but this modular design yeah, of Mutable, this has been uh, explored years back, and yeah, so we had a look at two systems in particular named Genesis and Exodus, and Genesis explored this modular design. Of a, of a database system, but focused heavily on storage management. The other system, Exodus, is more of like a toolbox providing many building blocks for a whole system, and then you have to plug them together to, to make a whole. I think Mutable is not trying to be this, this toolbox. It's, it's more of this Genesis approach where we have this modular design, but we would like to extend this into the whole system that every part of a database management system can be unplugged and replaced by an alternative implementation. Cool, cool. So, yeah. So, so I know in, in like kind of following on from this then, so let's dive, dive into to Mutable a bit more. So there are five sections in your paper and each one outlines a different problem and Immutable, the vision for it, and it gives an example of how Mutable approaches solving solving this problem. So let's let's start off with, with components. Um, Give us the, the, the problem, the vision, and the example. <laughs> okay, so uh, as I've said, we want to do a modular design, uh, and we didn't call them modules. We called these things components, uh, perhaps, perhaps because I didn't like the name clash with the new upcoming C++ modules. I don't know. I just preferred the name components. Uh, conception is the same. What we want to achieve in Mutable is that we kind of dissect and hold database management system into its individual parts, the components. And now we can provide alternative implementations for either of those, plug them back into the system, and they just cooperate and they work together. And we have four software design goals in Mutable uh, that we also want to achieve through this component design. So let me just elaborate the these software design goals first of all we have extensibility our system should be extensible meaning that you can always add another algorithm that solves a particular problem and it, it, i would say it's kind of different to a plugin mechanism or something like for example you can in postgres you can have define new data types 
types, something like something like that through plugins. It's not the same thing. Yeah? It's like extensibility here means like you have a part of a system for which there might already be an implementation, but now you can provide another one. Yeah? Then we have uh, as a software design goal, a separation of concerns. Um, so here we mean that if you design one component, you should need not need to know about how any other component is being implemented. Merely the API of the other components might be of interest to you in case you make use of it. So let me give you an example. For example, if you do plan enumeration, what we call it, I think a more common term would be join ordering, where you have to just come up with different join orders. To do so in, a, in an efficient and meaningful way, you would have to know cardinalities of subproblems. And there will be a component that does exactly this cardinality estimation in Mutable. So now this plan enumeration component will use the given cardinality estimation component to estimate those cardinalities. However, there can be various implementations of this cardinality estimation component. You could use histograms, you could use, um, I don't know, neural networks, or what we have done actually is uh, some product networks, which are also machine learning approach, but they are placed in the domain of interpretable ML. And that's kind of cool. Okay, cool. So no matter the implementation of this cardinality estimator component, the plan enumeration component should be separated from that. And that also guarantees us that we can just replace one thing and not breaking the other things in the system. Um, okay, so our third design goal is kind of the software design goal that you find in every piece of software. It's called abstraction. Who would have thunk? <laughs> <laughs> but, but let me just try to make this a little bit more expressive. With abstraction, I want to achieve that we define a nomenclature in the system that fits our academical terms, like what we learn in the lectures, what we use in teaching, such that you have a very easy one-to-one -one correspondence from your lecture materials to the implementation in the code. And this, of course, this makes it, if we would achieve that, if we, if we can achieve that, it makes it very easy for newcomers to start working with the system. And then our fourth design goal is, is actually um, a follow-up on the third design goal, because usually abstraction comes at a cost. So now our fourth design goal is abstraction without regret. And also here, I think I should elaborate a little bit on what this regret part is. So if you think of abstraction in an object-oriented programming language, then you can say, you define an interface, and this interface defines some, some method and now you can have classes implementing this interface and these classes override this, this method. Now, if you have the a pointer to, this, to an object of this interface and you call a method, at runtime, you now have to deduce the runtime type of the object. Yeah? So it's, it's called a dynamic dispatch and a common implementation of virtual methods, which are then compiled using V tables, for example. And this overhead is the regret part of abstraction. And it can be a pain if you have functions or methods, such virtual methods that are being called frequently, but doing only little work. And there is a one particular use case in database systems where that occurs. And these are interpreters. So query interpreters, 
they suffer from this overhead. Yeah? And, and this has led away from the initial Volcano iterator design of query execution towards this vectorized interpretation. Yeah? So you, there you accommodate for this, this call overhead by just processing a batch of values. So yeah, these are these four software design goals uh, that we want to achieve in this component design. Cool. I just wanted to roll back a sec to to, to like to, to kind of highlight what are the components? Like, what did you decide on the the boundaries would be in a database system, and how easy was it to come to that decision? Was it obvious that you were going to split it up into a storage engine, planning enumeration, etc.? And was there other ways of which you could have divided the system up? Okay, yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, some parts were kind of obvious, um, and some parts were are not even done yet. I have to be honest here. Yeah, I mean this is a work in progress. So for many things, we don't have a solution yet. So yet, that's the that's the key word. <laughs> <laughs> yes, consider for example concurrency control. Yeah, so modern concurrency control, you would say perhaps multi-version concurrency control. And then you look at implementations of those, you have these, these, uh, these chains of, uh, of versions of a tuple. And usually you need to integrate this with your storage engine. And this would kind of violate the separation of concerns part, right? So I, I don't have an answer yet to how we will do this. Yeah, but our research agenda is to find a solution to this problem of designing a multi-version concurrency control system without having to bake into the storage engine that you have these version chains. Yeah. So it's it's an open problem, but I think this this is also quite interesting to have a look at. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting problem. And you've actually preempted one of my questions I had written down to ask you earlier on was about concurrency control and how you would solve problems associated with it, like the one you just said. But I, I look forward to seeing how you how you tackle that. Oh, actually, on the components, we didn't enumerate what the components were. So maybe you could give us just a 30-second rundown of the different components. All right. So the components that we have implemented in the system and for which you also provide alternative implementations are the data layout component. So data layout describes how would you lay out the data that is given by a table schema into a linear address space. And uh, so the data layout component is actually not really a component in the sense of the other components, but it's 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 more like the, the API that we use to communicate between a particular data layout and the remainder of the system. So how it works is that we have um, kind of like a domain-specific language in which you can express how you go about laying out data in a linear address space. Um, for example, you could um, you could describe for for a given schema, you could describe how you would implement a row layout um, by computing padding between the attributes and then padding between the rows. And then you'd give this back to Mutable, and now Mutable understands, aha, so this is how I'm going to address the individual attributes and the individual rows of this table. And it's a recursive way of formulating this layout, so we can also express PAX layout, or we can express PAX and PAX layout. Um, it's still not feature complete, 
So for example, what we really would like to do is support arrow format, but for the arrow format, it, we need also to have uh, various variable length arrays, and this is something that we don't have yet. But yeah, that, that's that's it about this this data layout component. And um, when I later come to another component, we will also see how this is later picked up in the system and used. So uh, then the next component that we have implemented is cardinality estimation. And for cardinality estimation, we actually have only one implementation at the moment, which are some product networks. And these are a, a really interesting way of gathering statistics of tables. And these basically work in a, in a fashion that you take a table and now you have two ways of, of modifying it. You can either partition it horizontally, so building clusters of rows, or you can partition it vertically, splitting attributes from other attributes. And so then this algorithm for the Sun Product Network builds a tree of nodes where in each level you either split rows or you split columns. And it's done in such a way that it it understands correlated columns and eliminates this correlation through this clustering process. I mean, it's it's hard to wrap up, but what's really cool about it is you that this model learns correlations between columns and you can exploit that by actually attaching the um, the number of foreign keys that match to a primary key and then learning on this kind of extended column. And then you also can catch um, correlations over foreign key joints. And that's really powerful. And what's cool about these some product networks is, I mean, there was this is not our work, right? So we just picked this up and, and said, let's implement it into this database system. Um, now, what we did is we used Eigen, the, the vector and matrix library, um, to do a kind of an efficient implementation. And there we spotted a neat trick. So we can actually tune these SPNs with a, with a, just one configuration to just behave like regular histograms. And so we just have histograms for free. No. Nice. Cool. Then next we have um, cost functions. And here we have two kinds of cost functions. So first we have logical cost functions or algebraical cost functions where you take just a look at this algebraic tree of operations. Operators, how you join um, how you join the relations together. And then we compute logically how costly is a plan. And this is mostly concerned about the cardinality estimates that you get and the logical type of operation. Like if you have a join, then you consider the input sizes, things like that. And then later uh, during the optimization, we also do a physical optimization step where we already have computed a, a tree shape, but now we have to compute for every node in the tree, which physical operator will we use. And here we actually have linear regression models that are automatically trained on the system through benchmarks such that Mutable learns about how efficient certain operations run on the system. And then it learns these cost functions for these physical operators and that these can be used uh, at physical optimization time. Then we have plan enumeration. That's the name that we gave it. Uh, the, the common term is join ordering. We just extended it to plan enumeration because uh, there can be other things than joins that need to be considered. 
but basically it's join ordering. And uh, here we implemented many of the textbook algorithms like uh, these dynamic programming algorithms, size, sub, and CCP. Also more, more recent ones like these top-down, but still all of also dynamic programming algorithms, uh, MinCard advanced generate and test and MinCard branch. And then we also have our own algorithm. This is based on heuristic search and I think we will we'll briefly discuss it at the end of the session. Cool. And then there's there's the query execution component. And uh, this was actually the, the origin of mutable, so to say. Um, so in the query execution component, we have one minor implementation that is deprecated already. It's, it's a, it's, it was a stupid interpreter. And I really want to get rid of the thing. And then we have the compilation of SQL queries to WebAssembly and compiling that to x86 using a WebAssembly a VM from Google. And that's actually the the initial was the initial project that that started Mutable. Yeah. Okay. These are the components. Fantastic. Um, so just to summarize, there we've got query execution, storage, data layout. Plan enumeration or join order, depending on your preference of terms, um, cardinality estimation, and how you go about um, doing cost functions. So cool, awesome. So let's 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 move on to the next uh, the next section in your paper, and the one where you talk about how you mentioned it a little bit there ago, a second ago, um, code generation. So what's the problem? What's the vision? And how is it? I mean, you mentioned slightly how it's tackled a little bit. But can we dig into a little bit more, maybe? Of course, let's do it. So code generation we do in kind of two fashions. So the first way we use code generation, I mean, code generation, first of all, we use it for this abstraction without regret part. Yeah. So we want to get rid of this regret. One way of doing it, and it's kind of the easy way, is using metaprogramming through your compiler. So Mutable is written in C++, so we can use templates. And uh, templates are just a way of metaprogramming. So we can compose different parts of the system at compilation time of the system. And that's one way to do it. Of course, this doesn't always work. You know? and, and there are situations where we have to compose code at runtime of the database system, but at the compilation time of the query. And this is where the, the compilation of the query comes in. And, and I mean, this, this was already explored in the very first database, relational database system, right? So the system R already had compilation of queries to machine code. Yeah. They just abandoned it. I think I think if I remember correctly, it was because it wasn't maintainable at the time because you didn't have compilation framework like LLVM. And then Thomas Neumann picked picked this up. Yeah, he in 2011, I think it was, um, there was this paper efficiently compiling efficient query plans and there he uses LLVM, which is like the most famous open source compilation framework, compiler framework. And uh, so he uses it in his system hyper to compile queries. And it works wonders. Yeah? So now you can compile whole pipelines into tight loops and you can pass values in registers rather than through memory. And uh, it's a big gain on efficiency. You know? However, LLVM is not a JIT compiler, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. So 
of course there is there's a tool in LVM to do just-in-time compilation for sure, but LLVM wasn't designed as a just-in-time compiler as its primary goal. And if you look at the LLVM code, you, you quickly realize that it, this this design of LLVM is highly dynamic. It's it, many pointers in there, many dynamic data structures in there, because its main purpose is analysis and transformation of code. And to enable this transformation, you need these dynamic data structures. This is probably not what you would see in a just-in-time compiler. And uh, so the just-in-time compilation with LLVM, you still see that there are high compilation times. And this is where we actually had a discussion at the, at the reading group of the compilers chair at, at my university. And so we had this outrageous idea of just compiling SQL to, to JavaScript, yeah? Because JavaScript, it's a highly dynamic language, which is being just in time compiled in every browser. And I mean, it was a funny idea, but I never gave it much thought until WebAssembly was released. And then I was like, oh yeah, WebAssembly, that, that's really the, the game changer here because now we have a fully typed low level language and, and that could do it. Yeah. And so, so I started writing it and I started writing code generation to WebAssembly and we hacked, we hacked V8 into Mutable. So um, we embedded V8 and we had to actually patch it a little bit. You can read it in the paper. And V8 is like, it's, it's, it's a toolbox that works just magic. Like you provided this WebAssembly code and it compiles it to x86 and executes it. But it does so much more because V8 actually ships with two compi compilers. It's it's called tiered compilation. So you have one compiler that does a single pass over the WebAssembly code and compiles it immediately into non-optimized x86. And I mean, can be slightly optimized, but the critical part here is you don't have optimal register allocation because that's really a difficult optimization problem. And so you have this fast compilation tier, which does a single pass linear time over the WebAssembly code, produces x86, and you can just run it. Low overhead, low delay. Now V8 in the background runs an optimizing compiler com called TurboFan, and it does optimizing compilation, and it produces optimized x86. And then, because it's a VM and runs your code and instructs your code, it can just, behind the scenes, switch from the slow-running, non-optimized code to the optimized, fast-running code. And you get this for free. And that's, that's really good. And, and if you look at Umbra, which is, which is a new system from uh, Thomas Neumann, where they actually built their own IR and they built their own just-in-time compiler, that's a lot of work to get this. Yeah? And if you can just take V8 and WebAssembly as an IR, you get basically these features for free without this development effort. You know? So that sounds like a, a bit like a free lunch there, really. That <laughs> taking V8, that's awesome. So this is this is where that's going to appear at um, EDBT, right? Yes, exactly. And that paper's called what's the title of it? So we can the listener can look out for it. It's called a simplified architecture for fast adaptive compilation and execution of SQL queries. There you go. Listen, you've been told go check that paper out when it when it um, when it gets published. Fun. And, and let me add to that yeah this paper is already outdated 
<laughs> okay, oh, wow. so what we did in the meantime is so so what we what you see in the paper, the technique is the same. Yeah? We do this. So the way we do this is basically the same, but what we changed now is how we how we implemented it. Earlier we had to write the code generation kind of directly, like writing a compiler for SQL queries. Now what we did is we wrote a domain-specific language that's embedded into C that looks like C, has almost the same syntax, similar semantics. You can just write it into in between your C code, but when it's being executed, it actually generates the WebAssembly code in the background. So now this is another way of metaprogramming. So it looks like you're writing a regular program, but through the execution, actually it produces the code. And so this is one way that we hope we can make code generation much more accessible to the database community. Fascinating stuff. I just wanted to just make, make a real quick point as well when you said that they'd, they'd already tried this um, back in System R in the 70s. And I'm pretty sure that that is a rule for all ideas in databases since then. They already they already tried it in the System R. <laughs> like, um, yeah. yeah tried all, all the good ideas were taken straight away in, in the 70s. Um, but no, yeah, they were probably a bit ahead of the time. <laughs> um cool Definitely so not. um i guess the the next problem um that you mentioned in the paper is physical optimization so what is the problem here yeah so um physical optimization i mean maybe it's it's a bit of a vague term you, you could think of of join ordering but now consider physical operators so Usually, if you, if you would just say join ordering by the textbook or how you would do it in a lecture, then you would just say, okay, I have my algebraic join operation. I have some very abstract cost model for this, this operation. And using that, I now just compute an optimal plan. And doing so is already, it's, it's an, a complex problem. Depending on the cost function, it's already NP-hard. But now if you change from this cost function which is just algebraic to physical implementations, meaning that you have not just one join operation, but you have various implementations. And just considering binary joins, now the complexity already explodes exponentially. And this is, is a problem, but on the same side, it's important to consider these physical implementations because you can make you can exploit some things. Yeah? For example, if you know that a stream of data after some operation is sorted, it makes a merge op- join operation cheaper, right? So that should be considered during the optimization process. So how we tackle the problem of this this um, highly very hard optimization problem in Mutable? How we tackle that is that we first do a purely algebraical optimization step. So we take this query, we represent it as a graph, then we compute a join order, so to say. This is what we call the plan enumeration. And this is done using an algebraical cost model. And what we compute is a partial order. It's it's a tree. And the tree dictates a partial order of the joins. Now with that tree, we go into the physical optimization step. And in this physical optimization step, now we only determine two things. For the nodes in the tree, we determine which physical implementation to use. For the, the children of each node can still be permuted depending on the operation. So if you have a commutative operation like an inner join, then you can just permute them, right? So permuting them 
you decide which one becomes the build and which one becomes the probe relation for a hash join, for example. And so this is also still not determined by this algebraical optimization, but now we can determine an order using physical optimization because, for example, for the hash join, usually you want to build the hash table on the smaller relation. Yeah. And what's actually quite funny is that now after we have determined this tree structure during this algebraical optimization, and we are and we are now left with this physical optimi optimization step, the physical optimization step can now be done in linear time, actually. Because you could say, okay, but there are so many dimensions of this optimization problem. Yeah, but if you think about them, they're all constant in size. The only thing that remains dynamic, depending on the problem, is the height of the tree. And so this becomes a linear, linear time optimization problem, actually. So, I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess build, building on this, how is this? So is this, this is implemented in Mubile at the moment, then this, 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 all this functionality exists in there at the minute. Or is this is this still sort of are we still in the vision sort of territory here at the moment? Not on the main branch. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> yeah, this is okay. th this physical optimization is currently a master thesis of one of my master students. Okay, I see. and uh, parts are there, parts are missing. Okay, so very much coming soon then, but one to look forward to. Yeah, great stuff. Um, so I guess just moving on now to the 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 next sort of way you've you've divided this up in your papers we, we you've got a section about the way that you've tackled physical data layout independence now what's the problem here and as we've done with a few previous sections what's the vision and the approach and maybe an example as well yeah so physical data independence is one of the key selling points or key optimization techniques in databases because the user describes the schema, but how you actually implement it, how you lay it out on memory or on disk, this is can still be decided by the system. Yeah, and um, this 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 creates this independence between this implementation and the the description of the schema by the user. So now what you, what you can do about this, you can organize data in different ways on your on your storage be it main memory or on disk and uh, i mean we have seen this in the past because initially we had uh, these relational database systems naturally i would say they organized their data in rows of tuples then came the column stores that just did it the opposite way yeah using a columnar layout and uh, this layer is actually much better consumable by your hardware because now we have these, these SIMD extensions which can just batch process um, ho homogeneous chunks of data and the columnar layout just provides these chunks. And then we have hybrids like, like the PUCs, for example. And depending on what operation you're doing, one layout may be more suitable, the other may be less suitable. So for example, transactional processing may benefit from a row layout, whereas um, analytical processing may benefit from a corner layout. A and we don't want to impose this design decision on the user of mutable. You know? So we, we thought of how can we just decouple this from the system and have this like a, like a tuning knob. And it's actually quite difficult because if you 
if you implement a system with a particular layout, you can just hard code your whole system for that particular layout. Now, if you want to make this configurable, then loading the data suddenly becomes slow yeah? because at runtime of the database system, you now have to, you have to consider what is my configuration and then how do I load the data from, from my storage? And this is again an abstraction that we can achieve, but it comes with the regret part. And the solution that we found to this is that we provide a, a way of, of, of describing the layout. This is, uh, this is the data layout abstraction. You describe how you would lay out your data in a linear address space. Now this description is picked up by the query execution engine and we compile this directly into optimized code for loading the data. So we don't have one particular implementation for loading packs and one particular implementation for loading row and one for a column layout, but instead we have this, I mean, it's, it's a big chunk of code, yeah, but it processes this description and it generates exactly that code that you would probably even handwrite to load this data layout. Cool, yeah, so you, you, I just wanted to touch on that. You said that there's like a tuning knob. Um, mm-hmm. This 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 kind of comes from I was reading the paper a while back where they had like a hybrid layout in their system of some 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 data was stored in row format, some was stored in a column format based on it was like a high HTAP system that kind of dynamically configured itself based on what the workload was and changed the layout based on that. Is it possible to to do that, or do you think it is possible to do that, like kind of and have uh, define your own custom layout right where you have. Stuff that may dynamically change on the fly as well, or is it very much kind of you configure it one way? You're going to say I want to come on column, column the layout, and then you're stuck with that for the well, not stuck with it, but you know, for the experiments or whatever. That's the that's what it has to be to be fixed for the duration of of whatever. Or could it be dynamic, maybe? So at the moment, it, it, it's it's static. So you make this decision okay. once for a table, and this table is then locked to this layout. Cool. We have thought of of this um, migration from one layout to another. And what you actually can do at the moment is if you have a table with a particular layout, you can just augment that table by a new column. So that would be possible. Um, but just transforming it from one layout into another, uh, that's not there yet. And what's also not supported, and I, I don't know whether we really want that, but perhaps someone wants to try that out, is, is like having a change in the physical layout at some point like i don't know the first million records are in row layout and then you say ah but now from now on i would like them to be in corner layout i guess it's doable yeah because if you know that the first one million records this is a fixed amount then you can just actually encode that in our data layout and say okay so there's a block of one million records which is in row layout and afterwards there comes a block in corner layout yeah that's doable uh, yeah it's up to debate uh, yeah maybe, maybe it has no like value or anything like i mean yeah it, it depends but uh, that's cool that's cool so i guess we're on to the, the the kind of the last section that you wrote about of automated evaluation Um what's the problem here and again yes. vision the approach and then uh, an example okay so i think on the vision part there there are kind of two things here on the problem part actually there are two problems i would say so first of all when we think back of this this introduction with bobby tables having to do research and then evaluating the idea bobby has to evaluate related works as well and as i've said this can be can be a pain 
So what we wanted to do is right from the beginning, compare ourselves always to the major systems that are out there. And I mean, we just, some of them we do. Yeah? So we compare ourselves to Postgres, Hyper, and DuckDB. And we want to automate this process of comparing our system to the others, such that we don't have to do this by hand every time that we change something. Uh, the other thing, the other problem that I see is that if you build a system, you have to be very careful about regression. And when I say regression, you might initially think of testing, but there's also performance. And a performance regression is also not to be considered uh, or to, to be ignored. Yeah? So we have to be aware that changes to the system might deteriorate the performance and we should do something about it. Because in the long run, if we make many small changes that deteriorate performance, in the end, we might end up with a system that is of no use. So what we did is actually we stole this idea or we copied the idea from DuckDB because DuckDB has this continuous benchmarking website where they show their performance over some, some benchmarks over the, over the past days. And that's a great idea to do. And so we also wanted to do that. And we wanted to go one step further and integrate into this process, not only our system, but other systems as well. So what we have done now is we have built um, a script basically that that runs a set of benchmarks that are written descriptively in YAML files. And basically it's just a YAML file telling you which data to load into the database, which queries to run, which properties to extract from the system. What we now have done is we have implemented, we call the database connectors, like you could know them from your uh, fame, I don't know, preferred programming language having its own database connector, but it's not really the same thing. So these connectors that we implement, they are meant to run a query in the benchmark setting and extract benchmark information from that system. So for example, we have one connector for Postgres, which then runs a query does some timing and reports back the, the, this timing information. And the same we have for Hyper and DuckDB and our system. And now this, this, this uh, the script that runs these benchmarks picks up these descriptive YAML files, runs them in all these systems and produces output that we just insert into uh, a database. And so we have a database of all our measurements of all, all the past since we started doing measurements. And then what we did is we built a REST API on top of that database such that we can query this information <clears throat> from the web and also get uh, immediately some aggregated data. And then we built a web application in Flutter to visualize this benchmarking data. And I, perhaps we could just have used Grafana, I don't know. Anyways, we did it. <laughs> we built this web application in Flutter and uh, you can now visualize the recent experiments or just of a particular date. You can just go to a particular date. You see all the experiments that were run, all the results that were gathered of Mutable and the other systems. You can go to the recent, uh, sorry, to the continuous benchmarks tab and you can see over the past months or years how the performance has evolved, not only of our system, but also of the other systems. And, and now that's, that's really the, the neat feature here is once you have that data, 
you can analyze it. And so what we do at the moment is we take a look at our performance over the past two weeks and we compute the standard deviation and the performance. And then we apply some threshold, some multiplier to that standard deviation. And whenever now the performance peaks out of this range, we say there's a performance anomaly. And we issue a warning on the web page as well as we send mails to the developers that were that have committed to the system in that range of time since just before the anomaly. So we can actually find the people responsible for this performance anomaly. And you could blame them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like an early warning system to know that you've got a problem on the horizon or you've pushed some, pushed some, dodgy, some dodgy code. Um, but again, I guess if it's a performance like spike and it goes up, I mean, maybe it's a good thing, right? And if, as long as it stays up there, right? But um, Yes, yeah. we've thought of that already. Yeah, so yeah. on the website, when you have this performance anomaly, you can actually sign into our website using our GitLab for which only we now at the moment have access. But anyways, you can just sign in through GitLab. And when you do this, you can actually configure or, or uh, respond to such a performance anomaly. And you can say it's either expected. For example, you did some improvement. You ran it locally and so, ah, it increased performance. So now this performance anomaly is expected because I improved the code. Uh, you could say it's a false positive, for example, because someone at midnight was doing updates on this benchmark server. And then you can say it's a confirmed performance anomaly. And when you just click that button on the website, it creates immediately an issue in our GitLab instance and assigns all the people that have changed the code in that time to this issue, such that these people are immediately made aware of. And then when you close the issue in the GitLab, it also removes the performance anomaly from the web page. <laughs> That's really cool. That's a really nice system. That's it. Yeah, I mean, one of those you'd be panicking when you get a notification, like, oh wow, have I, have I, have I done something good or something bad? Um, but no, that, that, that's fantastic. Um, so, I, I, how easy is it to add either new systems to this framework or new benchmarks to this framework? And what's the sort of coverage in terms of benchmarks that are in there at the minute? Are we talking all the classic ones like YCSB, TPCC, TPCH, etc., etc., or is it just um, kind of handcrafted benchmarks at the moment? It's it's a mix. It started with handcrafted benchmarks, particularly because when we started doing the code generation part, so compiling queries, then we had to do benchmarking of individual operators. Then I did research on join ordering, so I wrote benchmarks for that. Then we integrated TPCH, or at least part of it, into the system. But I must say that there are many par many parts of SQL that we don't support. Yeah, so we have to take um, a look at the TPCH queries and see which parts do we actually support. Um, some more features are being added over time, but as this is a research project and it's only driven by research, there's no one really taking care of that, to be honest. Yeah, okay. but we have TPCH in there. And you can see the performance over TPCH, and no one cared to add more benchmarks, to be honest. Cool, cool. Um, cool, yeah, so that's great. I mean, I guess my next kind of question is um, we've touched on all the sort of the, the, all, the, all the good stuff, but what are the, what are the limitations of, of Mutable? And like, what areas of it are currently? I know, there's, I know it's sort of a developing um, project and it's not feature complete. 
Um, but yeah, so what are the limitations? And maybe I'm, I've kind of been primed for this a little bit, but the sort of maybe if you could touch on the limitations around concurrency control and things yep. such as that. Yes. Okay. So in its current state, Mutable is a prototype system. And it's it's therefore lacking much functionality that you would expect from a complete database system. For example, concurrency control simply isn't there. And the reason why that is is because it has been just the development has been driven by the research, and we just haven't been researching on all parts of a system yet. <laughs> so, but to make this more concrete, so when you look when you consider, for example, concurrency control, it's not implemented. But how would you go about implementing it? And that's really a tough question because one major limitation of Mutable is actually its design. Yeah? Because we said we want to do everything as components and these components have APIs, this means that any extension or algorithm that you want to add to the system must be squeezed into this API. But I cannot guarantee at the current state that this API is rock solid and will remain the same for the next decade. The problem really is that we might have to adapt. Yeah? So I'm pretty certain we will refactor the API in the future uh, because at some point we will, we or someone else wants to use the system, wants to implement something and says, with the current API, it's simply not possible. Yeah, It's not generic enough. So there's certainly a limitation that we are aware of, but we, are, we have a happy culture of refactoring. Yeah, so that's not a problem, I would say. Yeah, so if we figure out that there's there's a problem in the API, we will rework it. On the other side, when it comes to limitations, um, it's a tough objective to split a complex system like a database system into small, independent, exchangeable components. And during this step of doing so, one might increase the development effort of the system. Because now, if we have to do refactoring of the API, for example, this would also mean that we have to force updating all the components that implement this API because now it's deprecated, the old one. So at this point, it might increase the maintenance cost. On the other side, one could perhaps argue that it may also reduce the maintenance cost. Now, because during through this componentization, the individual part of the system become simpler to understand, and so they become more maintainable. But but that's that's something that I cannot tell yet. Yeah, future has to show. Cool, cool. So I, I'm kind of go, going off that, and obviously it's it's not like not all the features you want. It's not like kind of the the final sort of product yet. It's very still in a prototype state. But is it usable from the point of view of um, I can I can develop some new join order algorithm and I can use your system tomorrow in my in my in my work to generate results for me. Like how I guess the question that I'm gonna get around to is how usable is it at the moment? Um, the honest question is depends on what you're after. If you're after something that we did research on, I would say it's pretty usable. And particularly fitted for research, yeah. So, so it, it's really meant to just plug in a new experiment, run it, produce measurements. And that's that's really the purpose, and it does that job quite well in those areas where we did research ourselves and have evolved this this system. In other parts, 
at the moment you might be left alone. Like if you say now I want to do concurrency control and you go to mutable, yeah, there's nothing there. Okay. So I have a master's student now starting a master thesis on this particular topic of concurrency control, but at the moment it's not there. Cool, cool. But in the future, I'm sure, I'm sure it will do. Actually, I'm sure it will be. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I'm imagining the code is publicly available, right? We can go and find that, I guess, in the GitLab repo, and we can link to that in the in the show notes and stuff. Yes. So, so we made it just we just recently open sourced Mutable because we wanted if to, uh, we wanted it to be open source for the Cider conference. So, yeah. It's open source and it's under the AGPL license. Cool. So have you had any feedback yet? Any initial feedback from anybody outside of the, the kind of the, the creators? Have you had any? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's good. That's good though, right? Feedback's, <laughs> feedback's good. Yeah. One guy came and he said, benchmarks aren't working. Ah. And I, <laughs> I talked to him and, and turns out like when you want to run the benchmarks, you first have to get the benchmark data and there's a script that pulls the data. But it's nowhere written that you have to do that. <laughs> ah, okay. So it's just yeah. a documentation problem. Then you can, yes, yeah, fine. That's fine. That's not. That's no big deal. But that's good, right? That's good. Getting feedbacks always, always good. So I, this kind of leads on to my my next my next question. In that, obviously, this 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 podcast is obviously aimed at a whole why anyone who's basically inter- interested in computer science, right? But we're like, I always like to try and bring the research around to how people who work in industry can maybe leverage whatever it is we're talking about as well. So. Is there a way as a software developer, maybe someone working on databases for some database company or whatever, can can leverage to kind of mutable in their day-to-day sort of um, workflow? Or do you think it's primarily, obviously it was designed for academia, so this, it, it, it kind of makes sense for it just to be primarily used, used in that domain. But does it have any out, um, in, like use uh, use outside of that, that domain? Perhaps, I would say, for, for a particular use case. So... As I've said, my main interest in research was query processing. And so these parts were more more evolved. So if you are now after weird, complex queries, which you need to run fast, then mutable might be your thing because this thing is a heavy number cruncher. But apart from that, if you're looking for features or transactions, no. Cool, cool. Uh, this this next question is I imagine you're going to have some interesting things to say on this one. So what what, what has been probably I ask this to everyone as well. It's a pretty it's a standard question. So what is the the most interesting and maybe perhaps like unexpected lesson that you have that you learned while working on Mutable? Um, the first one is systems complexity was something that I didn't expect. On one side, systems complexity is a beautiful thing, but it's also very frightening. And it's frightening because one can, one can get the impression of never being done, never being finished. There's always more to do. There are always issues around. It, it, it's really demanding, I would say. Yeah? Um, one really has to keep um, the spirits up to keep working on the project and not be... Um, how would you say? Demoralized. Take it one yeah, day at a time, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. On the other side, it's very pleasing to see when the system components start interacting and cooperating together and forming the whole system. And when that works, it's really enjoyable. Then what I have learned during Mutable is that third parties can be a pain in the ass. <laughs> and 
for mostly for the reason of of automating the build process. So I mean, I wanted to build mutable such that it can also be easily deployed. But then again, we have to use third parties like, for example, V8 from Google, and you have to build that thing. And just if you build it for the first time, your computer will be will be like consumed for one hour. Yeah, it will be compiling one hour straight. And this is itself, okay, you have to live with that. But getting this build process started the right way, oof, that's that's really tough. Because then you look at another project like V8, and it has these millions of tuning knobs for the compilation process. And you have to configure it just in the right way that you want to use that project. Then it comes in an update, and suddenly things break. And that's really annoying. Yeah. 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 And, and I've also learned that CMake is can be so useful, but when it's misconfigured, particularly by a third party, it basically renders the third party unusable in your project. So that that is what I have seen. Uh, and also in in conjunction to that, dependency management in such a project with third parties is also annoying. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have we have mighty tools to do that, like Git submodules, which we don't use, or CMake external projects. This is the way that we go. But still, then some things change, and it works on one machine. You commit it. It works on one build bot. It works, and suddenly on someone else's machine, it's not working. And then you have to think about: Do you have to roll back the third party? But then you're missing on a feature or something. Yeah, that was really annoying. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. One I, thing that I have learned, though, which I'm very happy about, is building a team. So I had many people contributing to Mutable as part of being research assistant uh, or bachelor or master student. And it was really a joy to work with those people on, on the project. And I hope we can continue working on the project. And uh, so I what I think I started learning and I'm not done yet, is identifying people's strengths and their interests and then foster them and co coordinate their works and spark their intrinsic motivation to work on this project. Um, that's a skill that I didn't have before. And I wouldn't say I have it yet, but I'm on the way to learning that. <laughs> Work in progress. But no, that's great. Yeah. I mean, like, there's a sort of... It's a very different answer to anything I've had before for that question on those sort of soft skills about how to like build the team and how to correctly allocate people to the right sort of tasks and keep a, keep everyone motivated, especially when that, you were saying like systems development can be quite, no, nah, what's the word? Like demoralizing we said at the time, right? So trying to kind of keep everyone's spirits high and stuff. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a really nice answer to that question. Um, kind of going, going off that then. So, I mean, obviously we progress, this is another question that I that I ask quite 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 frequently. Is that like progress in research is is nonlinear, right? Like there's ups and downs. So from the initial sort of conception of the idea for Mutable to the side of paper that we've that we're speaking about today, what were the sort of war stories that you kind of could share along that, and and the things that failed that maybe other people could benefit from from knowing about? Yeah, I have a funny answer to that. <laughs> there are none. Because we actually we had the submission for the Sigmund paper on July fifteenth. Okay. And so the cider deadline was just one month ahead. Ah. Okay. And my boss was like, "Huh, there's cider. Let's write a paper." And we were like, "One month? 
oh, that's going to be painful. And so this really was just a sprint, just writing down everything that we have done so far on Mutable. There wasn't really any time for problems. <laughs> okay, it's such a power through. Yeah, there can't be yeah. problems. Just get the, get it down, get it written, and fingers yeah. crossed. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, cool. It was only possible, though, because there was this prior work that's now published in EDBT and Sigmod. Only because of that, we were able to rush this out in one month. Okay, yeah. That, that kind of makes sense. Like you've done most of the work for it anyway, and it's just a case of bringing it all together and writing it up. Cool. Yeah. So, so, so uh, what, just sorry, one thing. Ahead, yeah. The major obstacle here, though, was the six-page cider limit. <laughs> Is it six pages? I'm sure some papers are longer than, than six. I'm... Uh, the, that's a, the, the mechanism there is funny. For, for submission, it's six pages. When the paper is being accepted, you're unlimited. Oh, okay, right. That, I guess that makes the reviewer's life a little bit easier, or does it get reviewed again after you write like an extended version? No, it's not being reviewed again. Okay, so basically, right. you so, can so rewrite the whole like, thing. <laughs> yeah, my boss was like, let's just paste in the code of Mutable. <laughs> um, so, so where do you go next from here then? I mean, obviously, we've spoken about this across the course of the, uh, course of the podcast, um, and there's, there's a million and one directions for you to take um mutable in what's the next the initial next steps um yeah so if i if i were offered a postdoc position where i can continue my work on mutable i would say i take it even though i didn't have planned a career in academia but i don't know the project somehow has grown to my heart and also the people that i've been working with so i would take the opportunity and actually we have started thinking about uh, founding a company, but that's what? actually really hard because it's such an academic project with a research goal. Who are the customers? That's the question there, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's the selling point here? Yeah. So uh, yeah. So that, that really um, was a frustrating thing to realize that you have to come up with this idea of how to make money with it. And uh, yeah. We we don't have one yet, so that's why I think proceeding development in in academia first and taking this time to think of uh, how to make it uh, to a company that that would be one way. But uh, the, regarding research, what, what I'm currently looking at is um, on the one side is physical optimization stuff. So how can we what can we do during a physical optimization step? And I think we have some quite cool ideas here because. So we do this query compilation and we have kind of like a patterns that we apply. So we know how to compile a hash join. We know how to compile um, selection and whatnot. So now what we're currently looking at is how can we leverage more information that we have on the data to steer this compilation process. And so the idea came originally from, from looking at compilers and if you look at a compiler like Clang or GCC, you have to realize that these are general purpose compilers for any kinds of programs. And what's very, but what's really the most important distinction between a compiler and the database system to me is that the compiler, the general purpose compiler only gets the program as an input, whereas the database system gets the query as an input and will compile it. But it already knows the data that the program is being um, run on. So you already know the inputs to that program that you're compiling. So if you do know that, 
then you can use that information perhaps to steer the compilation process. So what information do we have on the data? And as I've said before, we have these fancy sum product networks where we can um, get statistics on the data in the tables. What we can do now is, for example, if we get a selection where X less than 42, we can actually look at the model and see, aha, uh -huh, so this predicate is highly selective. It's like 0.01% of tuples will qualify. Now, this makes sense to compile into a conditional branch. But then again, there might be um, a predicate, a selection predicate where X less than 42 with only a selectivity of around 50%. And here a conditional branch is actually not a good choice because the branch misprediction penalty might be very high. And so this can now flow into this physical optimization process. And then we can, on one side, having trained these re regression models on the particular hardware, we know how costly is a selection using a conditional branch and how costly is a selection using predication. And then we can steer this compilation process to compile just the right code for the particular machine that we're running on. I mean, that, that seems like a really interesting direction. Yeah, so my my next question is, we, we've touched a little bit on, on, on your other research, but if you want to elaborate that on any more, please, please go ahead now if you want to touch on the maybe the upcoming EDBT paper or obviously mention the, the Sigma one that was, was last year. Oh, yeah, is it this, so oh, is it this year, Sigmund? Is it Sigmund 2022? It's, it's this year, 23. Ah, I, I thought it was 22. Ah, sorry. No, no. no yeah. We submitted April. in 22. I mean, the, the, ah, the, okay. the cycle is quite long for Sigmund. Yes, um, yeah. No. Okay, so uh, for the EDBT paper, which is about this compilation of SQL queries to WebAssembly, I think I have stated most of the key takeaway messages already. So if any of your listeners is interested in how we compile this actually to WebAssembly, have a look at the paper. But bear in mind that the way that we implemented Immutable is already overhauled in the sense that we don't write the code generation directly now, but we have this DSL in between. It looks like you're writing C code, but actually you're doing code generation. Makes it a whole lot more accessible. Yes, and then the other the other research paper is the Sigmund paper, and uh, we haven't spoken of that yet, I think. So here, it's it's a whole different topic. So it's about join ordering. And actually the, the interesting way is how this actually sparked. So you have to know that our chair, our database chair is, is co-located on the same floor with the foundations of artificial intelligence chair. And their, their domain of expertise is automated planning. And so <clears throat> at some point we were sitting in the kitchen and I had a chat with, with a colleague from, from that chair. And uh, I was describing this problem of join ordering to them. And then he was thinking about this problem from his point of view of a planning task. And it turned out that this is, is it is, can be seen as a planning task, of course, um, but it's not one that you would usually find in their domain because it, it has, from the perspective of planning, it has a particular property that the, the state space changes with every action. And okay, um, anyways, you could argue that it's 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 a it, it fits into this lifted planning domain, which I just had a quick search backwards. I think it's like started only in 2019, so it's, okay. it's recent. It's yeah. recent research. Um, so so what we then did is we decided that we perhaps should collaborate collaborate on on this problem, and we had a bachelor student looking for a thesis. 
So we said, how about you implement join ordering as a planning task in PDDL, which is the, the problem, problem description language that they use. And then you just feed it into a solver. It's named fast downward. And then we just have a look what's, what's coming out. So how well does a, a regular general purpose automated planning solver work on our problem? And results were quite disappointing in several ways. Because on the one way, uh, on the one side, the, the solver has to translate from this description of the problem into an intermediate representation and thereby already doing exponential work, amount of work. So that's already not, not a good idea. But then once that was done and you could run the solver on this description, well, the description is exponentially large in size, so there's not much to gain. But what we saw is that the heuristics for for planning that were provided in this off-the-shelf planner, they are general purpose, but they don't really help in our problem. They're not informative. You know? And uh, also another problem, and that's implementation detail, this, this solver is implemented for all kinds of, of um, um, planning tasks. And so it's not a domain-specific solution, and therefore it's it has it's slow. There's some overhead in it. And so after this bachelor thesis, I decided to implement my own solver in Mutable, that is domain-specific for our problem. And uh, basically, I implemented many variants of the A-star search algorithm. And then um, I did some memory and compute optimizations for the representation of this this problem, uh, because now we we can do that. We are not domain-specific. And also, I gathered some statistics of this planning process and to understand what's actually going on in the search because we didn't really have that much insight in the beginning. And then uh, we started just doing experiments and writing this up. Yeah, and and then at some point, I spoke again to my colleague from the artificial intelligence group, whose name is Daniel Gnad, and I'm very thankful for his for his advice during this time. Uh, so I discussed with him this problem, and then I spotted an optimization opportunity that already has a name in this planning community. It's called a partial order reduction. And basically what it means is you can figure out that you have a search problem and there are several paths that go from the same start to the same goal. And these paths are actually identical up to permutation of the actions. And you don't want to consider them because they're of no value. Yeah. So consider, for example, you have a bushy join plan and you have A join B on the one side, C join D on the other side, the order in which you do those doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter. And so you don't want to consider those. And then we, we figure out that there is an optimization potential, and we also implemented that. And it turns out that now the heuristic search works wonders. It's really fast, and particularly fast on tough optimization problems. Like if you have dense, dense queries, like, I don't know, like 20 relations, in a clique shape or something similar to a clique. These, these are the really tough problems and heuristic search can, can get away there much faster. Like we had experiments where it's a thousand times faster than state of the art. And, and this, this number is, is, is just, it's coming from the fact that we're just asymptotically faster now in solving this problem. And the crucial part is to understand this. When you look at these textbook algorithms like dynamic programming and top-down dynamic programming, <laughs> They are all exhaustive. They enumerate all these existing plans. They have to enumerate all of those that exist and pick the best. Now, what you can do with the heuristic searches, you can prune some away 
and still prove that you remain optimal. And that's really that's really a game changer, I would say. Yeah, wow, it sounds amazing. Like <laughs> a thousand, this is the number in itself, a thousand X sounds yeah. But but again, let me put this in pers- into into perspective. It's on the tough nuts, you know. Okay. Like if you really have a hard case where you have many relations and and many edges between those relations, then yeah, it excels. But if you just have like a chain of relations, or yeah, then then your standard dynamic programming will will be better. Cool, but I mean, obviously, it has some agility, right? If 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 you can integrate that into a system somehow, that can tell whether to use this approach or that approach based on yep. what the query is like, right? Then it feels like a win, <laughs> a big win as well. Yep. Um, cool. Um, so, kind of just going off like how this your research and whatnot, and how do you go about generating these ideas? I mean, a lot of it seems to be sort of just being in an environment where you're having conversations with with people from other domains, maybe, and kind of that spark kind of happens, but how, how, how do you have like a systematic way of approaching generating ideas and then selecting ones to work on? Um, I, honestly, I think I don't have, have really much advice to give here. I, I don't consider myself a visionary person, to be honest. I think of myself more as a problem solver, an engineer. And so as you've put it, being in a situation where you're confronted with a problem, so now this sparks my interest and, and, and uh, gets me thinking. Also, I should say that considering how slowly I progressed during my PhD, I was really slow. I should add the disclaimer that what I'm about to say is to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, so it's it's my personal experience, and please don't think like this can be advice. <laughs> um, but what I think, as if if someone's listening and is an ongoing PhD student, then perhaps what I could say is do what you do best. Play out your strength and don't blindly follow the next trend. You you will excel at what you do best, you know. And if you don't know your strengths yet because you just started a PhD as a PhD, then follow your personal interests and don't let your PhD advisor get in your way. You know? Find a way to convince him or her of your ideas. And looking back at the Sigmod paper, what what really has set this off was looking beyond the horizon like speaking to people that were outside of, of my domain and also that where the conversations sometime uh, put me out of my comfort zone because, you know, I have like I have this nomenclature, the terms and, and this way of thinking about databases. But now we look at the problem from a very different angle and, and from, with discussing it with someone from a completely different community, they use different terms and describe the problems differently. It can be, uncomfortable to to assume their point of view but it may be very worthwhile sure i think those like you said putting yourself in an environment where you are gonna be out of your comfort zone just instantly sort of gives yeah it's a more fertile environment for i like new ideas to generate right i think because if you stay within your comfort zone all the time you, you yeah, I don't know. You need that spark, and I think sometimes going out, stepping out of your comfort zone, speaking to somebody else about a problem who's from a different area can, yeah. I mean, it might might end up with no ideas, right? But you never know. You might end up with a really good one as well. So I think it's um, that's good, solid advice. It's trial so, and error. Exactly right. Yeah, that's just a scientific way, right? Um, so I, last question now. Um, what do you think is the biggest challenge in your research area now? And I don't know how you'd go about actually categorizing your research area because it's quite a novel sort of 
topic in itself, right? In the sense of building a an academic database, database system that people can kind of can uh, can use. I mean, I mean, yeah. What do you think is the biggest challenge in the area, and maybe even in the wider sort of space of databases at the minute? Um, that's really a tough question. I mean, what I felt during my time as a PhD student is that when talking to other PhD students, they were always interested in a communication and sharing ideas and perhaps even collaborating. And I think what would be cool is if we could ex uh, like mm, motivate our community to work more collaboratively on software. Um, and I think generally working on software is is currently a problem for research, I think, or our domain in databases. Yeah, because, um, and I'm, I'm, I must say, I'm a bit copying or, or re paraphrasing what uh, what Peter Bonge and others have said at this memorial of Martin Kersten at the Cider. They said that Martin Kersten was um, always thinking of how to um, defend his employees or PhD students that were working in software and, and getting their cre getting credit for their work in the academic domain. And you may notice you may notice because you have been or you you still are PhD no you you have um, kind of handed in, in right in, in the hinterland between sort of it's submitted I haven't defended yet but yeah it's still I'm still kind of technically one even though I have a full time job now but yeah. But I guess then then you had the same experience so you have to implement something in a system to do your evaluation. And uh, this takes a lot of time. And this takes a lot of time that you're not writing a paper and you're not publishing. And this is a problem of systems research, right? And I think that we could perhaps at least um, help people that are considering a PhD, a PhD in this domain, if we could somehow better balance this programming effort and systems development with the actual part of writing papers. And perhaps a system like Mutable that tries to be a, a system for researchers could help them just lift the burden off their shoulders. Totally agree. If you can minimize the overhead of like the implementation effort, whether whatever, in just even, I mean, because I guess in systems, it, it can be anything between like three months to, to two years, right? Depending on what the system is, what you're building. If you're going to build it from scratch yourself, which like yeah. you say is a huge amount of time out of a PhD that that is just, it's not dead time, but it's time. Like you are not producing um, papers and things that you basically eventually get judged by. Right. Um, in terms of all oh, like contribute towards, um, well, I mean, your thesis or if you want to stay in, in, in academia and whatnot, like you, they're, important things you need if you want to progress in that in that in that career right so totally agree if you can minimize the overhead somewhere and make it like a, a more streamlined experience or less time consuming i think that is a massive win so yeah totally agree with you and i mean like, like we can we can we can end it on that note um thanks thanks so much Manuel, for coming on the show um it's been a fascinating chat um if the listener is interested in knowing more about Manuel's work I'll put links to all of the relevant materials in the show notes and we will see you next time for some more awesome computer science research.
Thank you, Jack.